We're going in very deep today because this is the third installment in our series entitled The Resurrection of Hope. And it is my prayer for you that in this season, you will experience a personal resurrection of hope in the form of new optimism, new enthusiasm, new energy, uh, new courage, and new commitment to your own future. And this comes as, as our hopes come back to life. And what we're gonna do today is we're going to deliver a very important ingredient, a very important component. It's very, very critical, so I want you to be listening. I want you to be taking notes. I want you to be considering and pondering and don't allow anything to distract you as we dive into this good word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in the glorious and victorious name of your Son, our Savior Jesus, we are so grateful for this opportunity to connect, to share, to learn, and to grow. Thank you for everyone that participates in the church in the house experience each week. I pray that today your spirit, your presence, your power, your glory would rest, remain, and abide on our households, that you would visit us in uncommon ways, that we will experience the presence of God today as we hear the word of the Lord. Be glorified, magnified, and exalted in the word, and this we have prayed in Jesus' mighty name, and all the people that love Jesus said amen and amen. Well, uh, I'm going to be uh, reading in your hearing from St. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 24. Quite a bit of reading today, um, but we're going to start at verse number 13. Luke 24, verse 13 reads, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, I want you to notice that, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Woo! Who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the, as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Woo! And all the people said, Amen and Amen. Well, this is a very, very powerful uh, episode in the story, in the life of Jesus. And it's commonly referred to as the Emmaus Road. And the context is that 
Three days after the crucifixion of Jesus, um, his disciples were still devastated. They were disorientated and disillusioned. They were deeply discouraged and had given up hope. When Christ died on that old rugged cross, so did their hopes. And it's important to see this from their perspective because they had given up everything to follow Jesus. They had given up their businesses, their lifestyles, their livelihoods, everything. And they followed him for three years as he went from city to city, village to village, region to region, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, casting out devils and healing all manner of diseases. They were witnesses of his majesty, of his glory, and they believed in him. They believed that he was the one promised in the scriptures. And of course, at that time, the only scriptures that existed were the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That was the scriptures and the scriptures promised that one was coming. And they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel. And so when he died on that cross, their hopes were dashed. And they say it right here. We hoped that he would have been the one, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, I'm going to speak into our collective destiny from the subject, the power of hindsight, the power of hindsight. Make a note of that. The power of hindsight. You know, foresight is about looking forward, looking into the future. Insight is about looking into the nature of a thing that exists. You look into it. But hindsight is all about looking back looking back, looking, looking into the past, looking back over your life. And I want to talk about the power of hindsight as it relates to the resurrection of hope. Because if we are ever going to move forward with confidence, to move forward with conviction, to move forward with passion, to move forward with energy, with optimism and enthusiasm, if that's ever going to happen, then we're going to have to somehow make peace with our past. When we look back over our lives, the road seems littered with mistakes, with defeats, with failures, with betrayal, abandonment, rejection, sabotage. These are some of the things that some of us can see in our past. And unless we make peace with our past, we will never be at peace with our path. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Unless we can make peace with our past, we will never make peace. We'll never find peace in our path. Because we'll get to thinking that how it's always been is how it's always going to be. Whatever happened yesterday is probably going to happen tomorrow. And this becomes a self-defeating and a self-sabotaging way of thinking about the future. But I want to deal with it in some detail today, some forensic and surgical detail today. Because I want us to consider 
the two main divisions of the Bible, the two main divisions of the Bible. Yes, there are 66 books in the Bible, but they all sit in two main divisions. There is the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi are 39 books. That is the Old Testament. And then there's about a 400 year gap in history that we call the silent years. They're silent because there was no prophetic voice speaking into those years. Uh, you know, Malachi kind of ended an era. And then we have the New Testament, which is 27 books from Matthew to Revelation, 27 books of the New Testament. And that is the second major division. Well, there's a very important distinction between the Old and the New Testament. And it is as follows. The Old Testament is looking forward to the coming of Christ of the Messiah. The Old Testament is, is looking forward. It, it is a book of foresight. It is books of prophecy, predictions, um, and, and it, is, it is filled with, with indications and implications about one who is coming. Uh, he is coming in the Old Testament, but he has not arrived. And so the Old Testament tells us to look forward. But in the New Testament, Christ has arrived. Christ is here. He has appeared. He has given his life. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into glory. So the New Testament is a book of hindsight. It is looking back at what had happened. The Old Testament is looking forward to it. The New Testament documents it and then looks back at it. You know, according to the, to the scriptures, the, 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 the psalmist said, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. God has shined. And whenever, whenever an object is standing in light, Whenever an object is standing in light in, the, in, the, in the, the perfection of the beauty, the light from Zion, or the light that the scripture says God is, that no man can approach to, when an object is standing in light, the object casts a shadow. So a shadow uh, is the result of an object that is standing in light. Jesus... Christ is the object standing in light and his shadow is cast on the Old Testament. So that's why in the Old Testament, Christ only appears in types and shadows. He's prefigured, he's alluded to, he's pointed to, he's indicated, he's outlined. You only see him as the shadow, but in the New Testament, the object that the light is shining upon is Christ and we see him in his fullness when we get into the New Testament. And this really means that the New Testament is the correct interpretation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. The Old Testament is explained by the New Testament. The New Testament is contained in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is explained in the New Testament. What did the, New, the Old Testament mean 
Well, its meaning is revealed in the New Testament because when we transition from old to new, we come out of the shadow and we come into the light that is Christ. Yes, my friends, the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the person and the purpose of the scriptures. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and that's only possible in a circle, right? Only in a circle is the beginning, the end. Only in a circle is the first and the last. And when it comes to the circle of God's intention and the circle of destiny, Christ is where it begins and Christ is where it ends. And so when you're in the Old Testament, you are looking forward and you are trying to project and you are trying to predict. And there's a lot of people who who are New Testament saints who are saying, well, you know, I've been delivered from that Old Testament mentality. Let me tell you something. So long as you're still trying to project and predict, you have not been delivered from the Old Testament mentality because the objective of all of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament was to get you to project and to predict and to try to figure out what's going to happen, when, how. And so you're constantly looking forward. And when you, as a New Testament saint, are constantly looking forward, trying to predict and to project, you still have that Old Testament mentality, that way of thinking. And there's a problem with foresight and projection and prediction and prophecy. There's a problem with it. The Bible says that we know in part and we prophesy in part, and that when it comes to the future, we are looking through a misty glass. We're looking through a darkened glass. So you can see outlines, but you cannot see detail. And when you're looking forward, you see outlines. You can figure things out, you can guess, but you're still guessing because you cannot see the detail in foresight. You can only see the detail in hindsight. Woo, help me now. You can only see the detail in hindsight. That's right. Many of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament uh, speak of one that is coming, describe his character, his characteristics, his works, his attributes, but it is done in such vague terminology that you couldn't figure out with any accuracy what exactly was going to happen. And so these prophecies were not written to help us predict the future. They were written to help us interpret the past. Ooh, I'm going to say it again. The prophecies, the messianic prophecies are not there to help us predict the future. They are there to help us interpret the past. Let me explain what I mean. And yes, I'm taking my time and because this word is worth taking time. In the Old Testament, we are told that the Messiah, we, we have an indication that the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem. Out of Bethlehem Ephratah will he come forth who will be the captain of my people. Uh, but we're also told he will come out of Egypt, for out of Egypt have I called my son. We're also guessing he may actually come out of Nazareth because he will be called a Nazarene. 
And so there are three prophecies, perhaps telling us where Jesus is going to come from. And if you were to try to figure it out before it happened, you would end up with three different denominations, three camps, three theological groups, three Bible schools, all teaching a different perspective on where the Messiah is going to come from. You would have the Bethlehemites, you would have the Egyptianites, you would have the, the Nazarites, and they would all be guessing based on their scriptural prediction as to where the Messiah is going to come from. But once it had actually happened, when it happened, that's when the prophecies made sense. Because what happened is that he was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling uh, the prophecy concerning Bethlehem. He then escaped from King Herod into Egypt. And after the death of, e of Herod, he came out of Egypt and that fulfilled the prophecy, out of Egypt have I called my son. When he came back to Israel from Egypt, he settled in Nazareth and grew up in Nazareth and became Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilling the scripture that he would be called a Nazarene. You could not have predicted accurately his story using foresight, but with hindsight, you can see that the prophets were right. And that's why when you're reading the gospel of Matthew, you are going to notice that Matthew keeps, as he goes along, he pauses and he'll say, this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he'll tell you something else about Jesus. Then he'll say, this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying. In other words, Matthew was not using the prophecy to predict the future. He was using the prophecy to interpret the past. Woo, somebody help me praise God. And you know, uh, Joel said in the last days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Well, if you try to Try to figure out what that would look like. Uh, you know, you, you would come up with, with any number of scenarios, all of which would be wrong. It was when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and baptized the disciples and they were speaking in other languages and declaring the wonders of God in native languages of the people who were gathered in Jerusalem. It was then, now that it has happened, that Peter stood up and said, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. In other words, I am using Joel's prophecy to interpret what is happening right now, what has just happened. I'm not using it to try to predict what is about to happen. And so this is very, very important to realize that when you are uh, using foresight and you are trying to predict the future based on prophecy, you're going to come up with a number of scenarios that are probably wrong. But once the prophecy has been fulfilled, you will be able to look at the prophecy, look at what happened and say, this is that that was spoken by the prophet. Hindsight, therefore, has value, even bigger value than foresight, because foresight is flawed. It is, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we're looking through a darkened glass, through a misty window. We cannot see accurately when we are foretelling. 
But once it has happened, we are able to look back on what happened and realize that this was God. This was God. I'm going to get to my scripture in just a few moments, but this is powerful. I want to draw your attention to the experience of Joseph. Joseph at 17 years old dreamed of greatness, but his dream put him on a path, a painful path, the path of rejection, abandonment, and betrayal. It saw him on an auction block sold as a slave. It saw him accused of a crime he did not commit and incarcerated in the dungeons of the Pharaoh. It saw him forsaken by people he helped. It saw him alone. It was a horrible path. And it began with the betrayal and the aggression of his brothers. But you know, when Joseph ascended from the pit to the palace and became the prince of Egypt and sat at the right hand of the majesty of the Egyptian empire as, as the one with the, the signet ring of the king and delegated authority to administrate an empire. The day came when Joseph's brothers were before him. He knew them, but they didn't know him. He put the Egyptians out of the room, took off all of his makeup and his headgear, looked at his brothers and said, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery. And for that moment, as they begin to recognize him, they realize the depth of the evil that they had participated in. They realized how deeply corrupt, evil, and wicked they had been to sell him into slavery, to lie to his father, and to tell his, to break his, his father's heart by bringing the coat of many colors torn and dipped in blood. The shame overwhelmed them. They could not look up. They were angry with themselves. And Joseph said this, do not be angry with yourselves. It was not you that sent me here. It was God who sent me ahead of you to save all of our lives. Whew. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. It's just so powerful. How it is that this Joseph was able to make peace with his past. He was able to make peace with his painful past when he realized that God was in it, that God was there, that this was all part of the plan, that this was the plan, that God himself had orchestrated and permitted certain aggressions against Joseph in order to push him further along his path to put him in position where he could experience a promotion and divine protection and prosperity. It was the plan of God. It was God. He looked back on the painful episodes of his life and he saw God in it. And only when you can see God in your past are you going to have any power or passion for 
your future. See, if you can't see God in your past, then you, you're going to find it very difficult to believe that he's going to be there in your future. But once you see him in those episodes, all of a sudden you are at peace with your past and you're at peace with the people who did you wrong, the people who hurt you, the people that betrayed you, the people that lied on you, the people that sought to sabotage your success. All of a sudden you're at peace with them because you actually realize that all of this was part of the plan, part of the plan to get me in position for my next promotion and for my success, my kingdom success. Now, what does all of this have to do with our reading? Let's go back to the reading right now. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. Remember, they're walking with Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus because God has showed up for them in another form. Jesus is with them in another form. And that's part of the problem is that we are used to one form of Christ in our life, one form of his manifestation. So that when he shows up in another form, in another way, we don't recognize him. And I'm going to explain why in a minute, but we don't recognize him in other forms. And I'm here to tell you that God is all over your life. Perhaps in other forms, in other ways, because you've limited him to one way. If you don't see him that way, you won't praise him. But when you understand that God can show up in your life in so many different ways and in so many different forms, you'll begin to see God in things that that you would have you would have walked by, you would have ignored, you would have overlooked. But now you're looking for him and you realize there is God. That is Christ. There is the Holy Spirit. You begin to see it because you, you now realize that God is not limited to your form. He's not limited to your format. He's not limited to your method. He's not limited to your methodology. And we are in danger sometimes of worshiping our own opinion and methodology. What do I mean by worshiping our own opinion and methodology? Well, it's very simple. We ask God for things and we not only ask him for things, we think we know exactly how he should do it and when he should do it. And if he doesn't do it the way we want it, when we want it, then we say it's not God. And we start saying that God didn't answer my prayer, but maybe God did answer your prayer in another form. We say, well, God wasn't there for me, but maybe he was there for you in another form. So well, God never helped me, but maybe he did help you in another form. Here they're talking to Jesus. They don't recognize him because they've never seen him in that form. And here's what Jesus said to them. He said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What? Foolish and slow of heart to believe. Watch this. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Hold on a second. Here Jesus is saying, now, now your, your problem is that you don't believe all that the prophet said. Your problem is that you're slow of heart and you're quite foolish because you haven't believed all that the prophet said. You stopped believing what the prophet said because something happened that you didn't expect to happen. Now you don't believe all that the prophet said. He went on to say, 
Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? I love the way this particular translation puts it. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? In other words, he's saying, look, the prophets that you believe in actually told you that the Christ would suffer these things. You couldn't see those verses. You didn't see them because they were hidden from your eyes. The only verses you saw was the ones that talked about his kingdom reigning over all the earth. The only verses you saw was the verses that referred to his glory, his triumph, his reign. You didn't notice the verses that were dealing with his suffering and his death on that old rugged cross. You didn't see those scriptures. And so the Bible says, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he took them on a Bible study. And as he took them on a Bible study, he starts with Moses, which is the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he goes through to the prophetic writings, which include the Psalms. He goes through the whole of the Old Testament with them on this seven mile journey. And he's going through it with them and he's showing them the sufferings of Christ. He's showing them that Christ is going to suffer, that Christ is going to be the sacrifice, that Christ is going to be the Passover lamb. Christ is going to be the scapegoat. Christ is going to be uh, the animal that was slain in the Garden of Eden. Christ is going to be the one who suffers. That, that when these things were said by David, he was speaking of Christ. The things you read about in the Psalms, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was speaking of the sufferings of Christ. And he now shows them the suffering of Christ in all of the scriptures. Why was that important? Because you couldn't see it with foresight, but you can see it with hindsight. When you now look back after his death, burial, and resurrection, you begin to see, woo, you begin to see that this was the plan all along. This was always the plan. This is by divine design. It was meant to happen. It needed to happen. It was necessary. It was the pre, it was the, uh, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that arranged the sacrifice that would save us all from our sins. Jesus knew it. He knew why he was born. He knew why he was here. He knew what he came to do. He surrendered fully to that will in the garden of Gethsemane, said, not my will, but thy will be done. He knew it. He accepted it. No one took his life. He laid down his life. He gave his life, knowing that in three days he would pick it up again. He said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will build it up again. He was talking about the temple of his body. He believed in his own death, burial and resurrection because his understanding of the scriptures was accurate. But their understanding of the scriptures was limited because they had used the scriptures to predict the future and their predictions were wrong. Instead, Christ said, now let's use these scriptures to show you that God was in it all. God was in my arrest. God was in the 
was, was, was in the cat of nine tails. God was in the thorns that they put on my head. God was in the nails that they put in my hands. God was in the nails that they put in my feet. God was there when they lifted up the son of man because he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. When the son of man has been lifted up, then will you know. Woo! He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That lifting up is the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. Whew. And only when the disciples could see it and understand it and know it from the scriptures that this actually is the plan of God. This wasn't the devil. This wasn't, this wasn't a mistake. This wasn't something that went wrong. This was God orchestrating salvation. Through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. Mm. See all of a sudden now they're able to make peace. With what had happened in the last three days. I want to close with this. They didn't recognize Jesus. Because he appeared to them in another form. They didn't recognize him. But here's what they said. They said didn't, didn't our hearts burn within us. While he was speaking to us, it was his words that brought back my hope. It wasn't anything that I could see that brought back our hopes. It's what we could hear. And we could hear that this was the plan of God from the beginning. We just didn't know it. I want to pray for someone right now who's looking back over your life and saying, where was God? Why me? Why this? I want to suggest to you that everything is exactly how it's supposed to be. I want to suggest to you that even your worst mistake is a platform for your best and greatest miracle. I want to suggest to you that it's not over. It's only just beginning. I want you to look back and see God working mysteriously in your life, pushing you into position, correcting you, perfecting you, guiding you, directing you, bringing you to the place of your assignment because he has a promotion ready for you. I want to pray with you right now. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. For every soul under the hearing of this word, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will enter our hearts. That we might know the power of hindsight. That we might know the truth about our past. The truth about our path. The truth about our story. The truth about our experiences, even our sufferings. Father, I pray that the hope that died will come back to life in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that the dreams that died will come back to life in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that those aspirations that were quenched, I pray they come back to life in Jesus' name. I pray you raise up a people who are optimistic and enthusiastic, a people who are courageous and confident, moving forward to take on the challenges of the next chapter in human history. I pray you raise up an army that will bring glory to your name. For we declare that our story is glorious. For God, you are all up in our story. 
You're all up in our history and you're all up in our destiny. And this we have prayed in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, I don't want you to miss the next Church in the House experience because there's still one more installment of this particular message and you need to be there. Until next time, Shalom. You've been listening to a live sermon at ICANN Community Church. We hope that you feel inspired, informed, and empowered to take your life to the next level. We want to build a relationship with you, whether you attend ICC or not. Of course, we would love for you to visit or even to join. But if that's not possible, we can still stay in touch. Go to our website at www. ICANNCommunityChurch.com and subscribe to our mailing list for updates on special events which may be coming to an area near you. Until next time, this is Bishop Wayne Malcolm saying God bless you.